The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We are continuing our study on the Good Shepherd discourse, which Christ gave to the Pharisees when he was at the feast in Jerusalem. I'm going to read verses 11 to 21. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. Heavenly Father, in seeing the good shepherd, may we see Christ and may we worship him for your sake. Amen. I want you to look at verse 11. Look at the adjective that describes shepherd, good. Jesus says, I am, one of the great I am statements of John's gospel. It's a statement of deity, and he uses this adjective to describe himself, good. The word is kalos. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see it again in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. That word good, kalos, means precious, that which is excellent, that which stands alone. In John chapter 2, when Jesus turned the water into wine, the, um, the head of the, the feast came to the, the bridegroom and said, normally you serve the good wine, the good wine first, and then after people have drunk freely, then you serve the poor wine. But you have saved the good wine for last. Same word, kalos, that which is exquisite, that which stands alone. When Jesus 
told the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 13. He says there's four types of soils. There's the hard path, there's the rocky ground, there's the thorny ground, and then there's the good soil, the kalos soil. And if you remember, only the, that good soil is the believer. Only that soil bears fruit. All the other soils are people who ultimately reject the gospel. So Jesus calls himself this good shepherd, this shepherd who stands alone, this exquisite shepherd, the good shepherd who stands above all other shepherds. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that he is the chief shepherd. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.20 that he is the great shepherd. And ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of the shepherd motif that goes all throughout the Old Testament. I want to show you this. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 34. We saw this in our first week of our study. But if you turn to the prophet Ezekiel, if you get to Daniel, you've gone too far. It's right to the right of the middle of your Bible, Ezekiel 34. This is God's condemnation on the false shepherds of Israel, but also the prophecy looking forward to the good shepherd who is to come. If you look in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, look at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. If you think about the ministry of Jesus, when he's going all throughout Israel, that's what he's doing, is Jesus was seeking out his sheep. Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. You, let me put this mud in your eyes, go to the pool of Siloam and wash and then you will be healed. Jesus goes and finds him. Do you know who the Son of Man is? What's he doing? He's seeking for the lost sheep. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So that's what Jesus does throughout the Gospels. And if you look at verse 13, he says, I, God says, I will bring them out from among the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on the rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Of course, what do the sheep feed on? the Word of God. What did Jesus do in His ministry? He went up on a high place and He taught them. What does that sound like to you? Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus takes the disciples and He taught them the Word of God. He taught the sheep. He gathered the sheep. He taught the sheep. Verse 15 says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then if you skip down to verse 22, 
Yahweh says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set, set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So that is the picture of the good shepherd. You can turn back now to, to John chapter 10. And we've been studying the qualities of this, this good shepherd. In the first 10 verses, we've seen six qualities. First, that he's the legitimate shepherd, that he came through the prophecies and fulfillment of Old Testament types. Second, that he's the pursuing shepherd, that he goes after his own sheep. Third, he's the leading shepherd, that he leads his sheep with his voice. He calls them and goes in front of them. Fourth, that he is the exclusive shepherd. He's the only shepherd. There is no other shepherd. Fifth, he is the saving shepherd. He saves his sheep. And sixth, he's the life-giving shepherd. He came that we may have life and have it abundantly. If you think about what Jesus does as the saving shepherd, the life-giving shepherd, shepherd. The only way that Jesus could accomplish our salvation, the only way that Jesus could give us life is by laying down his life. The only way that he could save our souls is by going to the cross and sacrificing himself for us. Much of liberal Christianity, if you study liberal Christianity, what liberal Christianity focuses on is the teaching of Christ. It's Matthew 7, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And they talk about forgiving others. Of course, all those things are, are very good things. But Jesus came to do more than just teach us how to live. He came to give us life. And the only way he could give us life is by going to the cross. The only way for you to live out the ethic of Christ is for you to first be cleansed by the blood of Christ. The cross is what gives you the new life. The Christian ethic is worthless if you are not forgiven of your sins. So over against liberal Christianity, conservatives have often emphasized the deity of Christ, as we should, that Christ came as truly God, truly man, that he performed mighty works, miracles. He turned the water into wine. He walked on water. He healed the blind, the, the lame, the deaf. He raised the dead. He did these great miracles as proof of the fact that he is divine. But even if he would have only done those things, that wouldn't help us. Because it's at the cross that Jesus accomplished our redemption. And that's why Jesus ultimately penultimately, I should say, came into the world. That, that's the highest point of Jesus' mission, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The cross is the big reason why Jesus came. The reason for the manger is the cross. Jesus came on a cruciform mission to lay down his life for sinners. And that's what you see in verse 11. And, and this is really the, the, the critical point that Jesus is teaching about the good shepherd is that he is the sacrificial shepherd. The sacrificial shepherd. Verse 11 is one of those verses, again, here in John's gospel that is so deep and, and tells us so much about what Christ accomplished for us. Look at verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now, what defines 
being the good shepherd. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let me show you several aspects of the atonement from this one verse that Jesus teaches. First, these are subpoints, okay, that, that talk about Jesus being the sacrificial shepherd. But first is the costliness of the sacrifice. Salvation requires nothing less than the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just time, not just pain, not just hardship, but His life. So in so doing, we must be reminded that the grace that we receive through the gospel is costly. It is costly grace. It wasn't cheap grace. It's not just magic that God waves and says, I give you grace and mercy. It is a costly grace. It's there when you need it, but it was not cheaply attained. The highest price in the world was paid to accomplish the grace that we received. I read in high school, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he talks about costly grace versus cheap grace. Many Christians think of grace as just being very cheap, like a gumball machine, one of those free gumball machines in your office. You just turn the dial and you get another gumball. And that grace is just, you know, I can just keep sinning because there's grace there. And what Bonhoeffer said, he says, that's not really the the true understanding of grace. He says, grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of His Son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So it was a great price. Can you imagine giving your son? That is, that is the highest price that you could possibly imagine. And parenthetically, sometimes I talk to believers, and they're struggling with the fact of whether or not God loves them. And when you ever struggle with that, I want you to think about the cross. Because as Paul says, it is at the cross that God has demonstrated His love for you. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. So there's a, there is a representation of the love of God for you. And it is at the cross because it was a costly sacrifice. The second aspect that I want you to see of the sacrifice is the willingness of it. I don't want to dwell long here because I want to talk more about this later on, but it is the Lord who lays down His life. It's not taken from Him. The Lord is the one who gave it up. Matthew records, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus went to Jerusalem to lay down His life. It was a willing sacrifice. The third thing I want you to notice is the nature of the sacrifice. Notice that little preposition for. Circle or underline that little preposition for. For. It's the Greek word huper. It could mean for or on behalf of. The idea that is being communicated is substitution. It was Jesus who laid down his life on behalf of 
the sheep. It was Jesus in the place for specific sinners. Jesus' death for or on behalf of us. So Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for us, he, the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And that element of substitution is so important for you to remember that the cross is personal. The cross is personal. Jesus didn't just die arbitrarily. He didn't just die as a good example. He died in your place. So the death that you deserve, He took upon Himself. It's personal for you. And therefore, we should never talk about the atonement flippantly. I know sometimes we share the gospel and, and we, we, it, it's so common. We talk about the cross all the time because it's so, it's so crucial to our faith. But we shouldn't talk about the cross trivially. I was hearing a, a man explain the gospel to children recently. And, and he, he was doing the best job that I think he could. I don't think he was well-trained in what he was doing, but he had these kids around, and he said, do you understand that Jesus died for you? Yes. Do you understand that you're a sinner? Yes. It was just very trivial. But we need to remember that the cross is very personal. Your sin was upon him in your place, Condemned he stood, taking on the wrath of God for you. And that should strike us in the heart. That shouldn't just be something that's merely academic. That should be something that pricks our consciences and something that we dwell upon, something that motivates us that Christ died in our place. And then I want you to notice, fourthly, the particularity of the sacrifice. Notice the last word in verse 11. The sheep. The sheep. Jesus laid down his life for, on behalf of, the sheep. Jesus here is teaching the doctrine of particular redemption, which is this, that Christ died to effectively secure the salvation of his sheep or the church. Now, this doesn't limit the power of Christ's atonement. When Christ died, He could have saved 10 million worlds. That's how powerful the blood that He spilled was. That's how powerful His death was. He could have saved an infinite number of people. But in terms of the intention of the atonement, the design of the atonement, the atonement was designed to save all those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So God, remember we studied this, elected a people before the foundation of the, of the world. Jesus comes, and at the cross, He doesn't just make salvation a possibility for them. He actually saves them at the cross. So as sure as the sun came up this morning, those for whom Christ died will ultimately be saved because Jesus accomplished their redemption on Golgotha. 
It's finished. Remember, that's what he said. It is finished. Does that sound like a possibility to you? No, it's a certainty. Jesus came to save the remnant. You remember, the sheep are those whom he calls out of Israel. This is the remnant that he is coming to save. And, and so often, this fact is ignored. I've rarely heard this taught, that Jesus came to effectively secure the sal- salvation of the remnant. But if you look carefully, it's all over the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple cross-references. This is from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, "...for by a single offering..." Listen to this finality. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified are the believers. So at His crucifixion, Jesus perfected them. He accomplished their salvation. In the book of Acts, this is Acts chapter 20, when Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders at Miletus. This is what Paul says to them. This is verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He, Christ, obtained with His own blood. When did Christ obtain His church? When did He obtain His church? At the cross. That's when He paid the price for His church. You see this again in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. This is that great section where Paul is discussing marriage and the roles in marriage. But he says this in verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved who? The church. And gave Himself up for who? The church that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. One other cross-reference is in Revelation. This is just such a remarkable passage. This is what the, the angels and those in heaven are saying right now as they are worshiping our Lord and Savior. They're, they're saying this. This is Revelation 5.9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. That is what is echoing now in heaven, that Christ has ransomed for Himself a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So there's a particularity to this sacrifice, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but what that means is, is that if you are in Christ, If you are in Christ, your name was engraved on His hands, and He was thinking about you when He died, and that's remarkable. And fifth aspect of the atonement I want you to see of His sacrifice is in verses 12 and 13, and and that's the motivation of the sacrifice. If you 
look at verse 12 of John 10. There's a contrast that Jesus makes. He says, He who is a hired hand, it's a hireling, and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He, this is the hireling, flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. A hireling is not someone who gets paid for a job. This is a careful distinction we need to make. A hireling is someone who does the job to get the money. That's why the hireling does the, That's what motivates the hireling, is that they just want to do the job to get paid. In the Protestant Reformation, one of the ideas that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all these reformers taught is this idea of calling, that you can do your job, you can do your work as a calling from God. It's not just the priest who were called by God to a specific task. It's the farmer. It's the mother. It's the, the plumber. It's the doctor. It's the lawyer. That God brings a calling to bear on your life so that you do something because God called you to do it. Uh, the Latin uh, word vocari is where we get our English word vocation. Vocari means to call or to name. So God calls you to do something, and that's your vocation. And what is meant by a vocation is you would do it even if somebody didn't pay you for it, because God called you to that. God put you into that place. In the Revolutionary War, those who signed up to fight in the Continental Army that Congress assembled, they weren't fighting for money. They were fighting to dispel the British. They were fighting for independence. That's why they were fighting, although they did want to get paid, and the Congress lapsed on their payments. But they, their, their, their motivation was for an independent nation. And you remember when Washington crossed the Delaware, do you remember who was waiting on the other side? The British had hired some Germans to come over, the Hessians, and Washington and the Continental Army swept them. They were the hired hands. They didn't have a, a, a dog in this fight. They were just over here for money. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you have a hireling, somebody who this isn't their, their calling, if you have a hireling, when the moment gets tough, they're going to abandon their position, and they're going to abandon their position because they're a hireling. It's just like uh, a thief. A thief steals because they're a thief. They were a thief be before they stole, but they steal because they are thieves. And what Jesus is saying is, is all of these teachers in Israel's history, especially these Pharisees, they're not in it because they have been called by God and they are, have a desire to care for the sheep. They are in it for them. Remember John chapter 5? They seek their own glory. They are in it for the wealth. They are not in it for the sheep. And the difference is, if you see verse 13, the contrast, the hireling flees because he cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep because, look at verse 14, 
I know my own. Jesus cares for the sheep because we are His. We belong to Him. That's why Jesus lays down His life for the sheep, because Jesus cares for us because we belong to Him. Why do we belong to Him? Because the Father has given the sheep to Him. The Father gives the sheep to the Lord, so now we belong to Him, and He lays down His life for us. So that's what motivated Christ in His sacrifice, and obviously as well the glory of God, the glory and honor of God in our redemption. But this should be a special comfort to you, that you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ if you're His. You don't have this relationship with your shepherd that, that is distant. No, you belong to Him. And one of the earliest catechisms that came out of the Reformation was the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's a famous first question and answer. And I, I love this. I remind myself of this all the time. But listen to this shepherd imagery of belonging to Christ. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation." why? Because your shepherd cares for you. So that's the work of our sacrificial shepherd, that he laid down his life for the sheep. Eighth, in leading into this, is the reality that he is the personal shepherd. The personal shepherd. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So the good shepherd knows his sheep intimately. That word know doesn't just mean ethereal knowledge. It means a knowledge of intimacy, a knowledge of relationship. And the reason why I know that, it's, it's proven in the context. Look at verse 15. So Jesus uses a simile. He says, just as the Father knows me. How well does the Father know Jesus? <laughs> Infinitely deep. He has known the Father since before the foundation of the world. They have existed as Trinity forever. He says, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, that's how I know my sheep. That's how they know me. And that's why I laid down my life for the sheep. So Jesus, this is, this is so amazing that Jesus knows us and that we know Him that He cares for us. He sovereignly reigns over our lives. He watches over us. And by His Spirit, because we don't see Him. Has anybody seen Jesus in your life? No, you haven't seen Jesus. But by the Holy Spirit, He comforts you and He leads you. And you know Him through His Word. And this is what Jesus said to the apostles in John 14. He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. You know the Spirit, for he dwells with you in the person of Christ and will be in you. So the way that we know the Lord Jesus Christ 
is through the power of the Holy Spirit in us and how the Holy Spirit teaches us through the Word of God. And that's the Christian life, is that you begin to know Christ experientially. You begin to know Christ in your heart, in your soul, through the Word as the Holy Spirit teaches you who He is. Cornelius Van Til, the great apologist of the 20th century, said this. This is such a great quote. He said, I have never met Christ in the flesh. No matter. He has written me a letter. Not he himself. He chose helpers. By his Spirit, the Spirit of truth, these helpers wrote what he wanted me to know. From heaven, my Lord then sent his Holy Spirit on Pentecost to dwell in the hearts of all those whom he came into the world to redeem. I am, by his grace, one of them. Together, we form the church, his people. In us and through us, he establishes his kingdom as a soldier of the cross, strengthened by his power in the inward man. I fight daily against Satan, who seeks at every point to establish his own kingdom in the hearts and to the hurt of men, end quote. So that's the experience of your knowledge of Christ, that you know Christ, you came to trust him as your Lord and Savior, he sends his Holy Spirit into your life, and then you read the Bible. He gives you a book where you can know his character. You can know what he taught. You can know how he lived. You can know how he laid down his life. You can know his will for your life. And then he gives you a battle to fight. Jesus is establishing his kingdom over against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so you are engaged right now in a battle. But the good news is, is that that battle's final outcome is already decided. He's already won. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's the Christian life. It's the best life. It's the knowledge of Christ. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is that you know Him, because He is a personal shepherd. Does that make sense to you? If you're here this morning, and, and you have just a theoretical knowledge of Christianity— where you don't know the Lord. When I ask you, do you know Him? You say, well, I know things about... That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, do you know Him experientially? If you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, then you are not truly a believer. The Holy Spirit mediates the knowledge of Christ to you. So, eighth, He's a personal shepherd. Seventh, He's a sacrificial shepherd. Ninth, this is really remarkable, verse 16. He is the world's shepherd. And by that, I mean he's not just the shepherd of the Gentiles. He's not just the shepherd of Israel. He's the shepherd of the world. Look at verse 16. Jesus says this, this I have other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What does the fold represent? Remember, the fold represents Israel. The fold represents Israel. In the Old Testament covenants and promises, Jesus comes into the fold, remember, legitimately. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them, bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And then the decisive statement at the end of verse 16, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. So here's the picture. Jesus leads his sheep out of the fold, out of Israel, and 
he calls then the Gentiles to himself and adds them to the flock. So the flock is made up of both the Greek and the Jew. That's Ephesians 2, right? That he has broken down the dividing law that existed between the Jew and the Gentile. That's what the church is, uh, the ecclesia, the, the, the Greek word kaleo means to call, ek, that little prefix means from or out of. Uh, the church are those people that are called out of the world together. That's what the church is, that Christ calls His people out of the world to form a church. And what we see right here in verse 16 is the book of Acts unfolded. This is the book of Acts. What happens after Pentecost? The gospel starts to go forth through all the world. Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10, Paul taking, taking the gospel into Asia and then into to Philippi. It's the gospel going forth and Christ calling his church, his sheep to himself. And this is what's been going on for the past 2,000 years. This is the church, verse 16. I must bring them also, you the Gentile, you, and they will listen to my voice. Notice the certainty of this. I found this so fascinating. This isn't a hypothetical. I might bring them in also. They might listen to my voice. This isn't a hypothetical. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Christ will build his church. Christ will go and call his sheep. Christ will bring them in also. So as an evangelist, that gives me great comfort that my job is simply to proclaim the message, and then I can go home and with Mrs. Castleberry watch Colombo and drink some good coffee, and that Christ, the good shepherd, will bring in his sheep. He will call them. Isn't that great? Who's doing the work of ministry ultimately? God does. If you think you can do this on your own, you are sorely mistaken. And that's so, what so many people are trying to do. I can do this. I can pull this off. I can engineer decisions. No, you can't. It's Christ who calls them. Now, He might use you. He might use you as an evangelist. I planted, Apollos watered. Who gives the growth? God gives the growth. Christ gives the growth. Christ calls you. Christ brings in the sheep into the fold. So, that's the world's shepherd. And then tenth, He is the obedient shepherd. The obedient shepherd. I get that from verse 18. Look at the, the last sentence in verse 18. Jesus says, this charge I receive from my Father. A charge is an order, a command. He's saying, I received a command from my Father. He's talking about the covenant of redemption, an eternal covenant in which God decreed who would be saved and then sent His Son to save them. That's what we're talking about, that Jesus, before time, a plan was concocted in the counsels of God to send the Son into the world to save the sheep. 
And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, look, the the Father has given me this authority to execute this mission. So you're, you're given a mission, right? Think mission impossible. Remember Tom Cruise be sitting on the plane and he, he receives the, the, the mission on a, on a crazy telephone or a beeper or whatever, and then it self-destructs. Once you receive the mission, you have the authority to carry it out. Jesus says this, verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me. This is the mission, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. He has this mission, this authority to carry it out. Notice verse 18. Verse 18 is a remarkable verse. It puts to shame all, these, all those Discovery Channel classics around Easter time that talk about how Jesus was an unfortunate martyr. No, He wasn't. Listen to what Jesus says. No one takes it from me. No one takes His life. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That's the resurrection. I have the authority to raise myself from the dead. I have the authority to lay down my life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas comes in with all the, the temple guard, and Peter takes out his sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest guard, Malchus. Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. I have 10,000 angels at my beck and call. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I can get out of this if I want to. Put it away because this has to happen in order for Scripture to be fulfilled. He goes to Caiaphas' house. He goes before Pilate and then Herod. Pilate again carries the cross, endures the flogging, all of it willingly. All of it willingly. And then when he is on the cross... In John's Gospel, John says, he says to Telestai, it is finished. And then he gave up his ghost. He gave up his life. Jesus did not die by crucifixion. What I mean by that is Jesus died because he gave up his life. Jesus breathed, well, first, he put his head down then he breathes his last. Most people breathe their, breathe their last, then their head falls. Jesus says, to Telestai, it is finished. And then he puts his head down, and then he gave up his spirit. He gave his life for you. He willingly did this in service to the Father. When I was at AM, and you got in trouble in the Corps of Cadets, you, you had to do what's called marching tours on weekends. You didn't want to have to do marching tours. That's where you would literally march for three or four hours at a time as punishment. And you would do the, the marching tours. Uh, all the cadets in the Corps live what's on, the, live what's on called the, the quadrangle, the quad. And there were these big brick arches that were in front of the quadrangle. And out in front of the quadrangle was a big huge courtyard, and you would do your marching tours going back and forth across the courtyard. And on that courtyard was a memorial marker, and the memorial marker was for all those cadets who had later went on uh, to serve our country and who had given up their life, 
who had given up their life in defense of our country. And all of their names are there in brass on that memorial, including my father's name. And there's a verse at the top of the memorial that's quoted, and it's John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the essence of love, that you are willing to give up, to lay down your life. And many people have sacrificed their lives. That's what Memorial Day is about. Many people have sacrificed their lives. I've read accounts of Iwo Jima and things in Iraq where somebody would throw a grenade, and that grenade would be in the midst of a squad, and somebody would take their helmet off and put it over that grenade and then jump on the grenade and absorb the blast with their body. They would willingly sacrifice their life for their friends. That's love. But what Jesus did is he sacrificed the only perfect life, the only truly precious life as the good shepherd. He laid down his life in obedience to the Father. Paul says, Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was obedient in the cross to the Father, laying down his life. Now quickly, I want you to see the response to Jesus' teaching on the Good Shepherd. Look at the response. This is really interesting because the same response that you see here is the response that you see today in the world when the gospel is proclaimed. Look at the response, verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Notice that word division. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, truly, I don't mean just, I don't mean the American gospel, I mean the real gospel that calls people to repentance. Whenever the real gospel is proclaimed, the bloody cross is proclaimed, whenever that gospel is proclaimed, that testifies of man's sin, there's always a division that takes place. There's always a division. And and notice how this division folds out with the Pharisees. Look at verse 20. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar if you're a Christian working at a 500, Fortune 500 company right now? That you're insane for holding to the Christian sex, sexual ethic, whatever it is? You're insane? How, how can you not say that that's love? These people love each other? Notice, beginning of verse 20, underline that word, many. Many. The majority the majority response to the gospel is rejection. That's the majority response. There's a few. Others said, verse 21, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? There are a few. There's the Joseph Joseph of Arimathea's. There's the Nicodemus's. There's a few who believe. There's a few who trust Christ. There's a remnant of sheep that are called out, but it's only a few. And it's still the same today. Jesus said it would be like that. Remember, he said there's a broad road. There's a broad road, and the way is easy, and it leads to destruction. And what does he say? Many. The poloi are on it. The, the masses of the world are on it. But narrow 
is the way to life and difficult, and there are few who find it. Jesus called to save a remnant. It's few. It's the sheep. It's those whom are called out. And it's, it's exactly the same today. The sheep hear His voice. We know Him, and we follow Him. But we are a remnant. We are those whom are called out, and we recognize His voice. That's the reality of the world we live in. That's the reality of the church that the church, this precious body, are those whom are called out of the world. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these glorious truths that you've taught us about the Good Shepherd, that the Good Shepherd is a sacrificial shepherd, that in order for us to be saved, in order for us to have life, you had to lay down your life for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are the world shepherd, that you are not just the shepherd of the Jew, but you are the shepherd of the Gentile that you call us to yourself so that we know you and you know us and we walk with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you obeyed your Father even to the point of death, death on the cross, laying your life down for us. We praise you, Lord, that that death was in our place for our sins. And Lord, may we, when we think about the cross, may we never again think about it flippantly or trivially. May we have great respect in awe for you. May we be led to worship, and in seeing you, remember that you love and care for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.